Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. New series today uh, is called This Is Us, and there is a show that's on uh, television called This Is Us about a family, a very diverse family, and through kind of their ups and downs, and um, you know all the things they do, and their little Pittsburgh they love the Steelers and that kind of thing. So there's much to like about that show. Uh, but one of the things we see is that there are some things they value as a family. That there's some things that they're about, some things they do or don't do. And really in just about any family you think of, there are some values. There are things that kind of dictate what the culture of that home is. And, and some of them are stated and some of them are not. Some of them just happen naturally, uh, but, but some of them are things that maybe you put on a wall or put on a sign. I've seen some of that in people's homes. Uh, and really what we're going to do over the next few weeks is talk about the values of this house, the values of this family, because really what we are is a family. And um, a lot of families are somewhat dysfunctional and they are a little unhealthy at times and uh, every family has a weird cousin and, uh, and this family is no different. And if you say, we don't have a weird cousin in my family, that means you're the weird cousin. So um, the truth is, we are a big family, and we want to love each other that way and work through life together. And, and one of the things I wanted to do, and we kind of talked, started talking about this last weekend, but I really want us to talk about uh, what are the things we value, what are the things we love that creates the culture in this church that, that makes us the family we are. And it doesn't mean we're perfect. Uh, it just means what are the things we value? What are the things we love? What are the things we do or don't do? And last weekend, our team talked a little bit about five things that we do as a team, uh, as a church. These are five things that we value, that we really do, that we're going to get right. There's other things that we may or may not ever do as a church, but there's five things that, that we're going to do really well. And that's what we talked about last weekend. This weekend, what I want us to do is talk a little bit about our values, um, what kind of, what are the things that are core to who we are? And if you miss any of these, if you're writing this down, you can always follow along on the YouVersion Bible app. There's a live events tab. You can click on that and follow along with our notes there. Uh, the notes from the message are in there, so you can follow along and make your own notes. Uh, but these four core values are also up in our lobby. So these are posted in our lobby, so you can take a look at them. Um, and so we're going to walk through what those are today and kind of why they matter to us. The first thing I want to mention to you is that we value healthy relationships. And this seems like it would go without, say, without saying, but, but we value healthy relationships. We're committed to loving others sacrificially and resolving conflict biblically. And it's one thing to say we're going to love someone sacrificially, and it's another thing to actually do it, isn't it? You stand with your spouse on your wedding day, and you talk about how you're going to love each other, and then somehow the wedding day doesn't portend everything that's going to happen in the marriage. I, I tell people who are getting married, this is going to be a really good day. Not every day will look like this day. <laughs> I just want to encourage them on their wedding day, right? Um, because the truth is, there's lots of days it's hard to love your spouse sacrificially. But it's even harder to love people that, that you don't know real well sacrificially. It's hard to love people that you attend church with once a week or maybe once a month sacrificially. But the truth is that's how God has called us to love each other. And if, if, this is tough to understand, but, but we're a very diverse group. We've got people of all kinds of backgrounds, and we've got people of different ethnicities, we've got people of different uh, socioeconomic classes, and 
with all those differences, does my mic keep going out? I'm all stuffed up, I can't hear, so. With all those, different, all those differences that are resident, it makes it tough for us to love sacrificially. I will tell you this, there was last night here at Summit a uh, man who came to church wearing a Patriots jersey. <laughs> and with that kind of diversity, it's hard to love people, right? <laughs> and we can joke about that, but the truth is, um, <laughs> there are people in here that voted for the other candidate than you did in the presidential election or in the gubernatorial election. There are people in this room that, that look different than you do. There are people in this room that have different values than, that you may have. But the truth is, God has called us to love each other sacrificially. And that's one of the reasons we value healthy relationships. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is talking and he says this. Um, he responds to this, this question in verse 36. The question is, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And so the question is, which of the 600 plus laws in the Hebrew Old Testament is the greatest. And Jesus responds to him, and he says in verse 37, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first command, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So in the, in the Hebrew law, over 600 thou shalt and thou shalt nots dictated how people act, acted how they behaved, what they did, and this was a yoke that people could not carry that burden of. It's hard enough to get the 10 right, right? The big 10. But what we see in scripture is that the law was there to dictate to us how we should behave with God, what our relationship would look like, and what our relationship with man should look like. So even if you look at the, the 10 Old Testament, uh, the big 10 uh, that, that God gave to Moses, the 10 commandments, right? It's all about how we treat people around us and how we treat God. How do we respond to people around us? How do we respond to God? Now, how many of you would agree it's easier to have a healthy relationship with the people around you if you're not murdering them, right? <laughs> and so what Jesus does in this moment is he says, hey, let me boil down all the law into these two statements. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. With everything you are, love God. And then the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I'll be honest with you, I'm pretty good at taking care of myself because I like me a lot. Is anybody else in the same boat that you like you a lot so you can take care of yourself? I never have to, never have to remember to feed myself because I like to eat, right? That's a surprise to some of you, but I do. Uh, I never have to remember to, to take some time. Well, I do have to remember to take some time off once in a while, but I never have to remind myself to take care of me because I like me. But what Jesus is saying is it's our responsibility to like others as much as we like ourselves. Take care of them in the same way we take care of their, ourselves. Love them in the same way we love ourselves. And it's easy to love people. It's another thing to love them in the same way we love ourselves. And so Jesus says, if you can do these two things, all the other laws will fall into place. See, we spend so much time focusing on stop sinning that we forget if we will simply love God with everything, every fiber of our being, and love others as we love ourselves, everything else will fall into place. And so what we see here is this, this, this paradigm where Jesus says, let me shift your thinking and help you understand that if you'll just love God really well and love people really well, everything else will be better in your life. And what we have to understand is when we value healthy relationships, it's not just the people around us, it's God as well. We want you to have a healthy relationship with God. 
but, but your relationship with God influences your relationship with others. And your relationship with others is influenced by your relationship with God. So if you love people well, it's going to help you love God better. If you love God well, it's going to help you love people better. And at the end of the day, we're not saying these things simply so we'll all get along, so we can hold hands and sing kumbaya and feel good. Because nobody likes to fight. We're not saying it just to avoid fighting. We're saying it because there's something that happens powerfully whenever we're unified together. So the first part of the statement, we're committed to loving others sacrificially, even if they look different than us, even if they wear a Patriots jersey, even if they're on the other side of the Pitt-Penn State game. Ooh. I thought some marriages were going to end over the weekend. So that was the first part of it. The second part is we want to resolve conflict biblically because many times what we think of when we talk about resolving conflict is, well, I'm just not going to talk about it anymore. I'm going to suppress the feeling. I'm mad at them. I'm upset at them. They did something to me or against me or I was offended by something, and now I'm just not going to talk about it anymore, and that's how we're going to get over it. But that's not the biblical mandate for resolving conflict. We don't like it, but, but Jesus actually calls us to have grown-up, mature conversations with people about stuff. Matthew chapter 18 starts in verse 15. This is what Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. It doesn't say go to social media. It doesn't say go to Facebook. It doesn't say go to your, your friends and get them on your side. It says go to him alone, between you and him, right? If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So what Jesus prescribes is if you've got a problem with someone, you go to them, and you don't say, do you know why you're horrible? But you go to them and say, here's how I feel. Here's what's going on in my heart, and I want to work through this. I want to give you the benefit of the doubt, but help me understand, can we walk through this together? Because what Jesus says is, if you can reconcile, if you can work this out, you will gain a brother. So not only will your relationship be healed, but it might be better than it was before. That's what Jesus' desire is, is reconciliation in the body. He goes on to say this, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So it escalates, right? And then it goes on to say, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now what this means is you escalate because the goal is reconciliation. The goal is to have healthy relationships. And if, if the person you're in conflict with continues to say, I'm not interested, I'm not interested, I'm not interested, at some point you have to understand that maybe they're not a brother in Christ. Because Jesus is operating on the assumption that people that are legitimate Christians will long for reconciliation with each other. They might know that it's hard or difficult or challenging, but they'll know that it's still the right thing to do. So if somebody says, I'm not interested in reconciliation, then maybe you have to think, they might not actually be a part of the body. And he says you treat them as a tax collector or as, a, as an outsider, basically. And what they're saying is you don't treat them badly, but you hold them to a different expectation. You don't expect them to act like Christian because, honestly, they may not be a Christian. So you still love them, but, but you approach them differently. And so this is typically where this passage ends, where people stop reading it and go, here's how you work out biblical conflict. And this is true, and this is what we should do. And this is hard to do because a lot of us don't like to have hard conversations. We have to learn to, to do these well, and it's not always easy. 
But it's what God's called us to do. He's called us to leave a place of comfort for a place of health. The next verse, though, goes on to say, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So it's weird because Jesus kind of shifts gears. It doesn't seem like these two things make sense, but they do because what Jesus is saying is, um, hey, here's how you resolve conflict. Here's how you work through it, remember? And if you can reconcile, then you gain a brother. And here is the benefit for unity in the body. The benefit is that there is power in our prayers, that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whenever we come together and we're reconciled and we're healthy relationships, whatever we bind here is bound in heaven. Whatever we loose here is loosed in heaven. So what he's saying is there's authority when believers come together, not, not in uniformity, that we're all the same, we all think the same, but in unity, where we say, hey, in spite of our differences, we're still going to chase after the same thing. Hey, I, I don't have to agree with everything you do or everything you say, but we can choose to love each other anyway and walk through this together like grown-ups, because that's what God's called us to do. In that last verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. He's saying where, where people are unified, even if it's just a couple of people, I'm going to be there with them. <laughs> so many times there are churches that aren't unified, and they wonder where God is. It's like, well, hey, there's no magic formula. It's not how you do your, run your service or what you preach. At the end of the day, if you're fighting, then why would God want to show up there? Jesus actually said, the world will know you're my followers by your love one for another. That's the evidence that you're my followers, is that you love each other well, that you take care of each other. That's what's attractive to the world. Um, in, in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 2, Jesus had given instructions for the disciples to go to the upper room and wait for the Holy Spirit. And it says in Acts chapter 2 that they were all in one accord. And that does not mean that they were all in a Honda. <laughs> How many disciples can we get in a Honda? That's not what it means. They were all in unity together, waiting on the Holy Spirit. And this is what paves the way for God to work, is when people come together and they say, in spite of our differences, I'm going to choose to love you anyway. In spite of our disagreements, I'm going to choose to love you anyway. And we're going to work through this because we care about each other, because we're family, right? And, and then what happens is the Holy Spirit moves powerfully. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved because a group of ragtag um, people who, who were uneducated, the, the actual Greek word is, is what we use for idiots. They were a bunch of idiots who had an encounter with God, and the world was changed because of that. They were unified. They were believing together. What can happen when a group of idiots in Indiana, Pennsylvania will come together and say, hey, we're going to be unified together. We're going to trust God. We don't have to believe the same way. We're even going to love Patriots fans that walk through the doors, and we're going to chase after God together. I promise you our world can be changed if we'll just value unity. I've said this before, but if, if, if you and I are friends, and I find out from one of my daughters that, that maybe you were mistreating them, you and I would have some issues, right? I think every parent in the room would say the same thing. And I would do things a healthy way. We would have a conversation, what's going on, what's happened, that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, if you're in conflict with my child, you're in conflict with me. And many times when we have a problem with someone, we take the moral high ground and we go, well, I'm right, I'm morally superior. My, my cause is just... 
But what we don't understand is the person we're in conflict with is a child of God. And the person we're in conflict with is loved by God as much as we're loved by God. And what scripture lays out for us is if we're in conflict with people, we're in conflict with God. What I've come to understand is when I'm in, in, a, in letting sin creep into a relationship in my life, whether it's pride or jealousy or anger or bitterness, whatever it might be, sin also begins to creep into my relationship with God. So if you're not in a healthy relationship with the people around you, you cannot be in a healthy relationship with God. And if you are not in a healthy relationship with God, it is virtually impossible for you to be in a healthy relationship with the people around you. So we value healthy relationships from top to bottom. We will, I've been accused of, of putting my nose into people's business at times. <laughs> and the reason is because little monsters become big monsters. So many times we go, oh, well, that'll take care of itself. And it doesn't take care of itself. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And I value the health of this church and I value the health of this family so much that we're going to have some hard conversations at times, even if it's uncomfortable. Because we don't want little monsters to become big monsters. We value health, relational health in this church. Um, I've told some of our leaders recently that the thing that can mess our church up faster than anything else is relational dysfunction, people getting sideways people gossiping, talking bad, any of those, that, that's what is more dangerous to this church than anything else. We have a great relationship with our community. Um, this church is healthy, going in the right direction, but what can undermine it quicker than anything else is us allowing little things to become big things. If we can love people with Patriots jerseys, we can love anybody. The second thing I would say we value is creative evangelism. To reach people no one else is reaching, we have to do things no one else is doing. And we've been criticized for this at times. Uh, every year for our Easter outreach that we do, we always get some piece of email or somebody saying, you don't love Jesus because you didn't even talk about Jesus or you don't believe in the resurrection because you put Easter eggs out. Um, what we're doing is engaging our culture where our culture is at so that we can introduce them to a Jesus that loves them. So we're doing things that other people aren't doing to reach people no one else is reaching. We're, we're doing things in such a way that, that we're going to reach people in our community that normally we would never reach. Um, this year it was funny. It wasn't funny. It made me angry. Um, I got a, we got a message on social media from a guy who lives in, uh, you remember I said uh, idiotes is the uh, Greek for idiot, um, and he was an idiotes who lives in, uh, who lives in Altoona. He doesn't even know our church or anything, but somebody had posted a video. It was a recap video from Starlet Night. So Starlet Night is our special needs prom. Almost 200 people came for the special needs prom, a group of people that are marginalized and set aside by our community and by our world largely, and we want to bless them and help them. And he criticized us because he says, another example of the church acting like the world. And then he just went on a tirade about how lost we were and how horrible we were. And normally I don't respond to that stuff on social media, but I just like... You know, like, bring it on, buddy. But what he didn't understand is we're trying to reach people that no one else is reaching. So we're going to do something that no one else is doing. Does it make sense? No, not necessarily. But, but our strategy is to reach the lost. And so we're going to do things other people won't do. Did you know Jesus did this constantly? He was constantly having conversations with people he shouldn't be talking to. As a result, he reached people no one else was reaching. He, he was criticized by religious people for spending time with tax collectors and with prostitutes. And he, as a result of him spending time with them, he reached them. 
And I'm telling you today, as a church and as individuals, as part of this church, we have to believe in creative evangelism, doing things no one else is doing to reach people no one else is reaching. This is true in your own personal life. Do you, do you want to reach your neighbor? Don't just invite him to church. Take him some brownies. And invite him to church and say, I'll, I'll take you to lunch after church if you go with me. Do something beyond just going, hey, you wouldn't want to come to church, would you? No, I'm good. Thanks. Proverbs 14, 4 says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. What it's saying is we get a choice. We can either have a clean barn or we can have an abundant harvest. But if we have an abundant harvest, we have to understand that that comes by ox. They're going to pull the plows. They're going to do the work. And ox make mess, right? I don't have to get graphic here. You understand that, right? So we get a choice. We either have a clean barn or we have a messy barn with a harvest, uh, my girls are 13 and 16, and they are um, wonderful in so many ways, but they are inept at trying to keep their rooms clean. It is beyond their ability. They, they haven't grasped that. How do I, wait, pick up the clothes off the floor? And then I put them in the drawers? What? What is this, right? Like, it's new information. So they struggle with this. And when they go to see family, they go away for a week or they go on, um, go to youth camp or whatever it is, for a week their room stays spotless. It's like, oh, look at that. I can leave the door open to their room and it's clean, right? And so I could either have a clean room or I could have my girls at home. And that is not even a choice because I will take a dirty room with my girls at home every day of the week. I would not sacrifice my girls to have a clean room. But what happens is so many churches around the nation, we have said we're going to sacrifice lost people because we want a clean barn. Because when people get involved and lost people get involved, it gets messy. It it gets difficult. It gets challenging. When people come in that think differently than us and look differently than us and act different than us, it is challenging. But it is worth it because the option is we can have a clean barn and no harvest. Or we can say, man, it's going to be messy. It's going to be challenging. But we're going to have a harvest out of this thing, and it's going to be worth it. I'm telling you today, when we do things no one else is doing, we're going to have a messy barn, but it's going to be worth it. John 4.35 says this, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, lift up your eyes, you, and see that the fields are white for harvest. So Jesus was in this moment, he's interacting with a Samaritan woman, who was, this was off limits. Uh, she was a scandalous woman, we've talked about her some in the past. But he's interacting with this woman, she goes back to this town to bring all these town folk back. And while she's gone, the disciples are talking to him. Go, why are you talking to this woman? Right? It goes back to, to reach people no one else is reaching. you got to do things no one else is doing. This is Jesus, right? So he, he's talking to him, and he makes this statement. Don't say there are four more months and then the harvest. He says the, the harvest is now. He says lift up your eyes and behold the harvest. What he's saying is, hey, these Samaritans that you don't even want to spend time with because they're racially impure, Because if we're going to be honest, the disciples were a little bit bigoted. Lift up your eyes, behold the harvest. See all these Samaritans coming? This is what God is sending us. What we have to understand as a a church is God is going to send people our way that may challenge our comfort level a little, little bit. But that's okay. Because we're going to love everybody that walks through our doors. There's not going to be a person that walks through our doors that feels discriminated against, that feels less than, because we're going to love every single one of them, because God loves every single one of them. 
We're going to treat people with respect and dignity and love. We're going to show them. And this is the thing. People are going to walk through our doors that are kind of a mess. Do you know how I know that? Because we are kind of a mess. None of us have our stuff together. So when people walk through the doors and they're hurting, we're going to show them a God that loves them. We're, we're going to help them see who God values them as and help them get on the path to becoming who God wants them to be. Jesus was having an interaction with a, a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And he actually went to his house and was hanging out with him. And this is one of the things he was criticized over. And Jesus makes this statement in Luke 19.10. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And if we as a church can't wrap our brains around the fact that God wants us to reach lost people, then we have missed the mark. It's not about having a clean barn. It's about reaching lost people. It's about helping people who are far from God draw near to God. That's one of our core values. Number three, big faith. God does big things and asks us to believe in big ways and we'll never insult him with small thinking and safe living. Uh, Saturday, I um, was at the house with Kim and Emma and uh, Kim and Abby. Emma was at a friend's house and we were watching TV and I'm a nerd. I like, uh, I like nature shows and things like that. And we've talked about it, but I, I root for the polar bear, Right? Like when the polar bear is swimming up to the, the, the ice shelf and he sees the seal, I'm rooting for the polar bear. I'm sorry. The cheetah on the Serengeti, like I'm rooting for the cheetah. Like, come on, buddy, you can do it. I'm cheering him on. Um, but we're watching this, and it's about the Arctic. And um, there are these birds that, that live in the Arctic. They're, they're melnots. And these melnots, they, um, they have long lifespans, uh, and they have short seasons for giving birth to their chicks. And so as a result, they lay one egg per year. They have one chick per year. And they make their nests up on the side of this cliff in literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet off the, the, the floor of the ocean. And so there's hundreds of thousands of these birds up on these cliffs that have nested there because it's safe. Um, it's, it gets them away from predators. It allows them to give birth to their chicks there without worrying about, um, you know, predators coming, that kind of thing. So it's safe. It's secure. And what they do is they get up there and they, they give birth to these chicks. The eggs hatch. And within three weeks of the eggs hatching, the baby chicks are ju jumping off the cliff into the ocean. Now, this is a quick turnaround because by three weeks, the chicks' wings have not fully developed. In fact, they're pretty stiff. They can't really flap them like a bird. So what happens is they leap, leap off the side of the cliff with their wings extended, and they act more like a glider or even a parachute to try to get to the ocean. And, and one of the challenges for these birds and these chicks is that, that there are predators waiting on the ground for these chicks to miss the ocean because if they happen to land on solid ground, they will be devoured instantly by one of the predators. There's foxes, there's bears, there's all kinds of things around ready to make a meal of these baby chicks. And so what we see is that when the chick takes off, the father bird will fly right alongside it. It will stay with it all the way to the ocean. There's times that if that chick doesn't make it to the ocean and lands on the ground, that the father bird will land as well. And sometimes he can keep the predators from getting to the chick, and the chick can still make it to the ocean. And this is what I would tell you today. So many of us are like these baby chicks. We found security in the cliff. We have found security in our nest where we're at. We're comfortable where we're at. And we see the ocean, and we go, man, that's risky. 
That's dangerous. There are predators. There's all kinds of things we don't know about. Why would we take the risk and make that leap? And I'm telling you today, God's got a bigger plan for you than you can even possibly imagine. And many of us will never discover it because we're busy being comfortable up on the cliff. See, our God is a big God, and he does big things. If you look throughout Scripture, over and over and over again, the people that are celebrated in Scripture are the people that took risks and did big things for God. Now, they're not doing crazy things. Well, they are doing crazy things, but they're not doing things God didn't ask them to do. They're doing exactly what he asked them to do, but to the world it seems insane that they would do some of these things. And as a church and as the people of this church, I want to challenge you that we want to live with big faith. We want to do things that seem crazy to the outside world, but when we do them, we know God's called us to that. And it might seem insane for us to take a step, for us to leap off this cliff, but we're going to do it if God's called us to do it. Because if he has called us to it, he's going to stay with us the whole way. There is no danger associated with it. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's known as the Hall of Fame of Faith. And in the Hall of Fame of Faith, it talks about all these different patriarchs and pillars and icons of biblical faith, people who've done amazing things. And it goes through all their stories. And then it gets kind of toward the end. And it talks about some of the people who were martyred, that they laid down their lives, they were killed because of their faith. It talks about people who were boiled or sawn in two. And then it gets to this passage in Hebrews eleven thirty nine 39 from the message version. It says, not one of these people, even though their lives of faith were exemplary, got their hands on what was promised. Does that bless you? <laughs> God had a better plan for us that their faith and our faith would come together to make one completed whole. Their lives of faith, not complete apart from ours. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that they did incredible things for the glory of God. But many of them never got their hands on what was promised to them. And for us, we read that and we go, well, maybe God was holding out on them. No, 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 that's not the case. What was really happening is that their promise for their life, their faith was so big that it spilled out over their lives. That it impacted future generations. That it impacted people thousands of years later. What it's saying is their story and our story are not unique. They are one and the same. That we think our story is our story. It's about me, that I'm the lead character and I'm, I'm the hero of my story. I've got news for you. You are not the hero of your story. God is the hero of your story. That there is one story that's being told throughout history that is woven together from generation to generation. That the people we read about Hebrews chapter 11, their story is not complete because our story is part of their story. And it's not even their story, it's God's story. God is still telling a story that we get to play a part in, we get to be a part of, we get to speak into. That, that we are part of the rich tapestry that God is weaving, telling his story to creation. So when we look at this, we have to understand God wants to tell a story, but we have to live a life that's worth talking about. See, many of us, we pray prayers that are so small, they terminate with ourselves. God bless me, help me, give me. And when we pray prayers like that, it's understandable. We gotta pay our bills, we gotta do our things. I get it. But I think God wants us to pray big, bold, audacious, terrifying prayers. Prayers that, that I will never, ever see the end of. That if God blesses me and, and uses me the way I hope he does, that I will never, ever see the promises that are laid out because they are too big for my life. That they spill over into future generations. I think that's how God wants us to pray. He wants to have faith so big that our lives can't contain it. See, we pray comfortable prayers. And my question for you is, how will you ever know what God can do when you only do what's comfortable? 
God wants us to pray prayers that are bigger than our lives, that impact future generations. The birds, the, the mill knots that I told you about, for years scientists wondered why they didn't stay on the cliff, why they would take this risk, why they would journey out into the ocean, which seems wrought with danger. And what they've discovered is that that's where the food's, food source is, that the food is in the ocean. And over time, if the chicks stayed on the cliff, the parents would get so tired going back and forth bringing food to the chick that the chick would never grow to its full size. And so in order for the chick to become a mature mill knot, it's got to leave the safety of the cliff and journey into the deep water of the ocean. Because that's where it discovers how to become a mature bird, how to function like it's supposed to function, how to live like it's supposed to live. And I'm telling you today, many of us, our growth has been stunted spiritually because we're terrified of leaving the safety of the cliff. And I'm telling you today, you'll never become who God wants you to be if you don't take a step of faith, if you don't take a leap off the cliff and go, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. And this seems dangerous. It seems crazy. And why would I ever do this? But I'm going to trust you because the deep water is where I'm going to find you. The deep water is where I'm going to experience you. The deep water is where I'm going to grow in you. The fourth core value is radical generosity. Our God is radically generous, and we want the world to experience him through how we live and how we give. See, there's a common misconception, especially among people in the church, that generosity is related to wealth, but it is not. Some of the most generous people I've ever known in my life were the people that had the least amount of wealth as we would measure it financially. They didn't live in the biggest houses. They didn't drive the most opulent vehicles or go on the biggest vacations. They were people that just understood what it means to sacrifice. The amount of money in your bank account will not change the amount of generosity in your heart. Um, Jesus actually illustrates this. In Mark chapter 12, it tells a story here, and it says, and he, talking about Jesus, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. And I just want to pause there, by the way. Uh, I have never once stood by the back door waiting to see who's dropping what in the offering box. So if you think I'm mean, you need to check Jesus out. <laughs> this guy's hardcore. He says, many rich people put in large sums. So Jesus knew what people were putting in. And it says, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which made a penny. And they didn't have pennies then, but it was just a frame of reference. And it says, and he called to his disciples, and he asked them to come to him, and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. What we see here is that this, this widow, what she gave was um, uh, two lepton is the name of the coin. And it was the smallest coin in Judea. So it was the, the least valued. And it took two lepton to make one what we know as like a mite in the Greek. So when we talk about the widow's mite, if it says that in your Bible, or if you heard that story, that's what it is. So two lepton in the Judean currency was worth about 12 minutes of labor. So if you're an hourly employee, you could, you know how much you make an hour, now you can figure out how much you make in a minute. And what this woman gave was the average wage of someone for 12 minutes. That's what she gave. 
And Jesus had just sent exorbitant gifts going in. And what he tells his disciples is, she's given more than all these people. And the reason is because her sacrifice was more. And so when we talk about giving, we're not just talking about our finances. We're talking about our whole lives, living open-handedly with everything God has given us. But what Jesus says about this woman is, her sacrifice was greater than anyone, so what she gave was more important, was more valuable. And so what we have to understand is it's not about the amount we give, but about the sacrifice. What am I willing to sacrifice for God? What am I willing to lay down for his glory? There was a church in Jerusalem. The, the first church was in Jerusalem, and the church was struggling financially, and Paul asked the Corinthian church to contribute and to help the Jerusalem church, and they didn't really do the job, so he asked the Philippian church to step up, and they did. So they began contributing and helping the Jerusalem church, and Paul calls the Corinthian church out on it. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, out of the New Living Translation, they are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. So he's talking about the Philippian church, and he describes them this way. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but there are many people in this room or watching online that you would say, that is my life. I'm being tested by many troubles, and I'm very poor, right? Yep, check, check, that's me. But did you see what the next part says? It doesn't say, and then we all got together and complained, right? It says, but they are also filled with abundant joy which has overflowed into rich generosity. How could they have abundant joy if they're being tested by many troubles and they're very poor? The way they can do it is that they understand that my source is not uh, the person who signs my checks. My source is not what is in my bank account. At the end of the day, my source is Christ. When I trust him with my whole life, when I trust him even with my finances, he is my source, that he'll take care of all my needs according to his riches and glory. So I don't have to worry. So I can have joy even if my bank account says I shouldn't have joy because I know who my source is. Generosity is not dependent on how much you have in your bank account. And I'm not saying don't pay your bills this month and give to the church. And this is not, I'm not trying to twist anybody's arm today. Because what scripture says is, uh, it's joyful giver is blessed. And so I'm not asking you to give if you're like, I can't believe he'd ask for money. No, it's not about money. It's about generosity. Because our God is generous. Think about this. Everything you love in your life, think about all the things you enjoy in your life. Some of you woke up this morning, you had breakfast, Right? You had bacon and eggs, sausage and gravy. You had breakfast, a big cup of coffee. Some of you love your coffee, right? Some of you are going to watch some football today. You love the Pittsburgh Steelers. Your family, you're going to go home to a house probably, and your family, you love. So think about all those things. Every single one of them are a gift from God. You didn't earn it. You're not good enough for it. You go, well, I, I pulled myself up on my bootstraps. Well, who gave you the bootstraps? Who gave you the strength to pull yourself up? Who gave you the breath in your lungs? It all comes from God. At the end of the day, our God is radically generous. And so what we see in this woman's life and this widow who gave sacrificially and what we see in the life of the Philippian church who gave sacrificially in spite of their circumstances is I believe they were asking this question, what can God make possible with what I have? I don't have much, but God, what could you do with my little? God can take your natural and put it with his super and do something incredible if we just trust him. And again, I'm not talking about just your finances. See, there's some of you in this room that would rather write a check than come serve at our REACH event coming up. Because three or four hours on a Saturday 
is a lot more valuable to you than you writing a check to the church. So maybe God's not even talking to you about money today. Maybe God's talking to you about your time, how you spend your time, where you invest your time. Maybe he's talking about your talents, the, the giftings he's given you. Where are you investing that? Are you investing that? Because at the end of the day, God wants us to be generous, not just with our finances, but he wants us to live a generous life. I heard a story uh, recently. Uh, Frank Sinatra was leaving a hotel, and as he was walking out, the valet pulls his car up, and he looks at the young valet, and he says, son, what's the biggest tip you've ever gotten? And he says, $100, Mr. Sinatra. He said, okay. He gave him $200, and as he was walking to his car, he was about to get in, and he said, son, who gave you the biggest tip you ever did? He said, you did, Mr. Sinatra. <laughs> Mr. Sinatra didn't even know that he was already being generous, right? I'm telling you today, we need to learn what it means to really live generously, what it means to reflect the generosity of God to our world. When we did our teacher appreciation breakfast a few weeks ago, we gave away um, uh, Meadows gift cards to every teacher in our district. And you would have thought we were giving away gold bars, right? Because <laughs> they loved it. A simple act of generosity opened up people's hearts. That's what it's all about. The last thing I'd mention to you today is our vision statement. Every life made different. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When we think about new, we usually think about just updated, a little shinier, a little nicer. My wife and I are starting to look for a, a vehicle, and what we see is like the 2016 model is like this, and then 2017 has like a couple extra buttons on it, right? Like, oh, well, we've got this feature now. And so that's what we think of a lot of times when we think of new. And what we have to understand is that is not what this word means. Uh, the word is kainos in the Greek, and it means totally different. Literally, that's what it means. That It's something that's unparalleled, unheard of. It's something totally new, different entirely than, than what we knew before. It's, it's kind of like this. It'll say every day you went to Taco Bell for lunch. I'm sorry for you. I'll be praying for you if that is you. You go to Taco Bell for lunch every day. You get a bean burrito, Mexican pizza, and a large Sprite every day. That's what you get. And one day you go through the drive through line, and the, the person at the drive through says, hey, would you like to try our new burrito? Like, Tell me about the new bean burrito. Well, it's just like the old burrito, except it's got guacamole. You're like, guacamole? Mmm, me gusta. Okay. Let's do that. So you get guacamole, and it's a new burrito. And that's what we think about when we think about new. But when we look at this passage and we think about kainos, that, that word means something totally different. So imagine one day you go and you say, give me the new burrito. They say, very well, we'll see you at the window. And you pull up, and you open up your bag, and you look in, and there's no burrito. It's a prime rib. Like, wait a second, I ordered a bean burrito with guacamole, right? So no, 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 that's the new burrito. That's the kainos burrito. It's actually not a burrito at all. It's something totally different. Most of us would not shove that prime rib back in their face and demand our bean burrito, would we? We'd go, wow, this is totally different, but I'm happy with the totally different. And this is what we have to understand in this passage. What it says is, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. He's a kainos creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the kainos has come. The new has come. The different has come. So what it says is, whenever we come into relationship with Christ, when we, whenever we get to know God... We submit our lives to him. We're not just the, the spit-shine version of our old self. That's what we think we are. Oh, well, I'm still me. I mean, I still got all my issues and my problems, and now I just get to go to heaven. No. What Scripture says is you are something entirely different. 
you, you are brand new. Not just the spit-shine version, your prime rib and not being burrito. Does that make sense to anybody? You should be unrecognizable to people from your old life. You should go back to your class reunion someday and have people go, what happened to you? Right? You should be able to go to people you haven't seen in a while and have them go, man, something's different about you. Because that's what God does in our lives. And so for us, we want to see every life made different. We want to see people transformed for the glory of God. And the reason we say every life is because we don't care who you are. We don't care if you wear a Patriots jersey to church. We don't care what color your skin is. We don't care what neighborhood you live in. We don't care what kind of car you drive. We don't care what kind of socioeconomic background you have. We want to see your life change for the glory of God. Because every one of us need that. And if you've come in here and you've been saved for a thousand years, that's great. You're not arrived yet. God still wants to do more in your life. He still wants to make you different than you were before. That's why we do what we do. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 12, Jesus says, What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that has went astray? So what Jesus says is, hey, what a good shepherd does is he will leave the 99 to find the one. See, we serve a God who will leave lost things to find the, who will leave found things to find the lost things. Thank God he does, because he found me. And if you're a believer in Christ today, he found you, because he left what was found to find what was lost. This is his heart. This is why we exist. This is why we do the things we do. This is why we fight for healthy relationships and fight to minimize drama is because what we're doing matters to the world. It matters to eternity. We want to see the Holy Spirit move in amazing ways and God to transform lives. And so in order to, for that to happen, in order to see every life made different, we have to have healthy relationships. So we fight for that because we want to see every life made different. In order to reach people no one else is reaching, we're going to have to do some things differently. That's why we do things like at the movies. And that's why we do things like um, Starlet Night or uh, our police outreach or our, uh, our hospital outreach or whatever we do. We do those things to reach people no one else is reaching because every life matters to God. Every single person has a story and every story is important to God. Why do we believe for things that other people don't believe for? Why do we do things that seem crazy to other people? Because our God is a big God, and he's asking us to trust him, to take a leap of faith off the cliff into the deep water and see what he will do when we really let our faith grow. Because every life made different is important to God. Why do we live radically generous lives? Why do we give like we do? to our community, to our world, to missionaries, to ministry partners, to people locally. Why do we do that? Because we want to see every life made different. See, this is the common thread among everything we do. Youth ministry, women's ministry, doesn't matter. Everything we do is to see people changed for the glory of God, to see kinos happen in people's lives. Maybe you're here today and you realize you've never really been transformed. You've never really been made different. That's okay. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to make a spectacle of you. But I want to give you that opportunity. And if you're here today and you're not ready yet, that's okay. I want you to feel comfortable here. I want you to see what God's doing because I believe that's going to be attractive. That's going to draw you. I'm not going to have to convince you. I think the Holy Spirit will do that on his own. But if you're here today and you say, Mel, 
I've never really been transformed, but I know I need to be, and I want to be. I, I want to know the Jesus you're talking about. I want to surrender my life to him. I want to see my life made different. I'm going to give you the opportunity, and I'm not going to make you come forward or embarrass you. I'm just going to pray with you where you're at. So if that's you, um, I'm going to give you that chance right now. Now, if you would, bow your head and close your eyes all over this room. God, have your way with us over these next few moments. Be glorified in our time together. Lord, I pray that you would gently draw people to you. Help them see your goodness and your kindness and your love for them. And I pray that that would be irresistible. And with your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you say to me today, Mel, I want to surrender my life to Christ. I want to be made different. I want to be transformed for his glory. I want to take that leap of faith off the cliff into the deep water. I want to experience him. Would you be bold enough to slip your hand up real high where I can see it? And you can put it right back down. Thank you. Yeah, two hands on my left. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. I see you over here on my left. Thank you, ma'am. Praise God. Who else? Yeah, over here on my right. Thank you. Thanks. Up in the balcony. I see you up there. Praise God. Just a few more seconds. Anyone else want to join these? Say pray for me, Mel. Today's my day. I'm taking that leap. Thank you, sir. In the center section, I see you. Praise God. Whether you raised your hand or not, I'm going to ask you to pray this simple prayer with me out loud. Say this with me. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me and thank you for paying the price for my sins on the cross. From this day forward, my life is yours. Use it for your glory. Help me never go back to my old ways, my old life, or my old thinking. But from this day on, I'm made different for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause today. <laughs> I was trying to clap, but I had the least manly clap ever with the... <laughs> Guys, I just want you to know, if you made that decision today, I'm so proud of you, and I'm so excited for you. We want to help you take the next step in your journey, just like... That those baby chicks can't make it on their own. We want to help you. We want to guide you. We want to give you some covering to help you become who God wants you to be. And so we want to give you uh, some opportunities for relationships, for some small groups, for some resources that are going to help you grow in your faith. And the easiest way to do that is by simply filling out the card in the seat back in front of you. On one side of the card, it says need prayer. On the other side, it says salvation. If you fill out the side of the card that says salvation, simply drop it in one of our offering boxes as you leave today. We're going to help you take the next step in your faith journey. Uh, we'll reach out to you in the next day or two. If you can't reach one of the cards or maybe you're watching online and you'd like to respond, all you need to do is text the word salvation to the number 555-888. When you do that, we're going to respond back to you. We're going to help you take the next step. If you're here in Indiana, we'll connect you here at Summit Church. But if you're somewhere throughout the United States or even the world, we're going to help you find a life-giving church in your area that you can connect with and begin to grow in your faith. Here's what's going to happen now. The worship team's going to lead us in one more song as we worship together. Our prayer team is going to make their way up, and they'll be on either side of the stage. And if you need prayer for any reason at all, no matter what it may be, as we begin to sing, why don't you step out from your seat and let one of our prayer team members agree with you today. And we're believing that God will make a difference in your situation, that our God is a big God and he can do big things. We're believing that can happen today before you leave this place. When we get done singing in just a moment, uh, my wife, Pastor Kim, she's going to come, and she'll close this out and dismiss us. So why don't you stand to your feet all over the room. We're going to worship together one more time before we go today, guys. And I tell you often, I hope you know it. I love you more than you know, and I'm so honored that I get to be your pastor. God bless you guys. Have a great week, and we'll see you Wednesday night. <laughs>